0: and salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Stewie Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman. Hope you all had a very good weekend. This weekend, I sure did. I went to Typhoon Lagoon with my family, and I had a had a really good time. I had to stay out of the water most of the day because I still have a healing tattoo on my torso, and I just simply did not want to get it wet. I, I now I. I've been to Typhoon Lagoon many times in the past with my own sons, and so I've seen all there is to be seen at Typhoon Lagoon. So staying out of the water for the most part was not a big deal to me. I got to enjoy walking around the park and seeing my kids enjoy the park once again. I mean, my sons are older, but my 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 stepdaughters went there for the very first time, and it was nice seeing them enjoy the park and and what all what Disney has to offer. It was, it was a good time. I was disappointed to see and find out that the main attraction at Typhoon Lagoon, at least one of the main ones in my opinion, uh, one of those must-see things to do, was Shark Reef was closed. I, I was shocked to see that, and I guess it's closed for good. Now, for those of you who've never been, which I would guess that's most of you listening, Shark Reef was an attraction at Typhoon Lagoon where you could go snorkeling in a large saltwater tank that had stingrays and and nurse sharks and and other types of shark species and tropical fish and such it was it was really a lot of fun to do and 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 quite an experience but for whatever reason i guess disney is thought it was too much money to run which i find odd considering they've probably made a billion dollars off of star wars merchandise and movie making and such and so I, I don't know why they closed that attraction. They, they ended up building a new slide that allows for families of four to get together and go down this long slide. That was a lot of fun. But but man, Shark Reef was awesome and it, I was very disappointed to see it go. At least they got the Wave Pool, which is one of the other main attractions at that particular park. The Wave Pool is awesome. It allows for you to do some real surfing before the park opens and then some body surfing you know, when they do put their uh, six-foot wave on display, which is, it's it's pretty cool sight to see. Very powerful, but you can get very hurt in that wave pool. So anyway, it was a good weekend. I had a lot of fun, and uh, I'll be sure to be out there again sometime during the summer. But enough about that. I want to talk about Judo-related things, as you guys have seen from the the uh, subject matter or the episode name of this particular podcast. I'm going to get a little bit into judo history and a really interesting story that I learned about earlier this week and I was just dying to share this on this on the podcast, so I've decided to do it in this particular episode. And I'm also going to be talking about some of my thoughts on the Cancun Grand Prix. I'm not going to spend too much time into that because we got the the, the uh, another tournament happening in China next week. And I, I'm going to get into a little bit of that, but I want to also talk about my my thoughts on the Cancun Grand Prix. But first, there are some news-related items I want to talk to, some housekeeping stuff, as I always call it. I want to talk about a news item that is fairly old at this point, but I didn't have a chance to talk about it on my previous episodes. This Floyd Mayweather, uh, Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor fight. I'm stunned that this actually is happening for those who you who do not know Floyd Mayweather is one of the greatest boxers of all time and Conor McGregor is certainly one of the greatest mixed martial artists of all time I know over the past couple of years they've postured and and you know they're both great talkers on the microphone and I never believed for a second this fight would actually happen they talked about it but I just just never believed it. It's it, it the idea of it is patently absurd to me, because who would fight in whose realm? I mean Floyd Mayweather would never go into MMA. And I never believed that Conor McGregor would step inside a boxing ring and have a boxing match against one of the all-time greats. But sure enough, that's actually what's gonna happen. And I just I just I just think it's absurd. Conor McGregor doesn't really have a chance against Floyd Mayweather. And and again, to put it to say that floyd mayweather is one of the greatest of all time is it, i don't even think that does hit does it justice he is arguably the greatest and i think nobody would question if 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 floyd mayweather and manny pacquiao had that fight 5 to 7 years prior to when they had it in 2015 and mayweather beat pacquiao nobody would dispute that mayweather was the greatest but in typical mayweather fashion they do a lot of talking. They want to make sure the terms are right. They want to make sure the money's right and this and that. So that fight got delayed. And I think it hurt Mayweather's legacy just a little bit. But pound for pound, some people would say Ali is still greater than Mayweather. Some people would put Roy Jones Jr. up there. But Floyd Mayweather Jr. is, is undefeated in professional bouts. And he currently does not have a boxing title at the moment because... I, I, it's it's my understanding I don't follow boxing news all that closely but he had multiple titles in multiple divisions and that was against uh the boxing commission's rules so he just decided the heck with it I'm gonna vacate all the titles so if McGregor were to win he would not become a a champion a WBC or WBA uh, boxing champion in that particular division they're going to be fighting at 154 pounds. I, I Obviously, I think both men are going to be able to make that weight. They, there's too much money on the line. I think May, um, not only Mayweather, but Conor McGregor stands to make about $100 million from this match. And granted, after taxes and after paying your promoters, paying the people involved, paying your trainers, yada, yada, yada. McGregor stands to make enough money that his grandchildren couldn't spend. Uh, unless they just really spent it w- w- um, in ridiculous fashions. But... I don't see McGregor having a chance in a boxing match. It's just, he's got a puncher's chance, that's about it. The only advantage McGregor has in this fight is that he's younger. But Floyd, Floyd Mayweather is renowned for his fitness. And even at 40 years old, he, he can still hang with young guys very, very easily. So I just don't see this match going any other way. It's going to be Floyd Mayweather in an easy decision. Um, I don't think, I don't know if Mayweather will knock him out. He, he tends to be very defensive and he tends to be very accurate in his punches. I think he'll wear McGregor out and maybe he'll get a knockout, but I'm definitely not predicting a knockout, but I, I am predicting Mayweather winning this thing very easily. And I gotta, I gotta believe also that this is going to be the most watched boxing event in history. And if it isn't, I'll be shocked. So if any of you out there think that Conor McGregor actually has a chance in beating Floyd Mayweather, shoot me an email at show at gmail.com and I'll try and set you straight. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You're more than welcome to share your opinion. Uh, I'd be curious to hear from anybody who actually thinks uh, McGregor has a shot in this fight. Now, onto some judo-related news. I saw this trailer from Fighting Films that, or, or actually it was from Superstar Judo, that just totally made me go, ha, 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 I can't believe it. Um, Superstar Judo puts out this trailer and they didn't show the, the, the face of the person that they're featuring. They've got a video series coming out in July. All they showed was a couple of gold medals and all you see is, is this judoka doing, doing some entries and you catch a glimpse of the blonde hair and I was just... I was just thrilled. Right when I was about to cancel my membership to Superstar Judo, they sucked me right in. Kayla Harrison is doing a video series on Superstar Judo. So, guys, I got to hand it to Fighting Films. They've hooked me in once again for another month or two. Because they, they keep putting out great stuff. And I keep saying to myself, all right, this is going to be the month. I've seen enough. I've taken enough notes. I'm going to take what I've learned and just cancel the membership. I mean. I'm, I'm a cheapo I, I don't like spending money so it's like 15 bucks a month so I've been paying that and and it, it's a fair deal and it, they put out a lot of good videos but none of the videos that they put out are anywhere near as detailed as the videos that my friends Nick and Cy Collier of the Nick and Cy show on YouTube put out for those who do not know Nick and Cy have been one of my favorite YouTube channels over the past several years They've been making Judo videos, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu videos, self-defense videos, and stunt videos for many, many years. And they also compete in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and they are sponsored by 8711 Action Design, which is one of the production companies that brought you to John Wick movies. Nick and Sai have recently put out an instructional video called uh, Everything About Arm Spins. And for you Judo folks out there, the arm spin is Yoko Wakari, in case you didn't know. And as I said before in my last podcast, the deep the level of detail in this particular instructional is outstanding. They talk about the throw from different types of grips, different situations, what makes a throw fail, what makes a throw succeed, and they go into these different situations that I, it's just you don't see in instructional videos from other companies like Superstar Judo simply because Superstar Judo focuses on judo on the gi where Nick and Sai show this technique from gi, no gi, and, and just a variety of situations. Not only do I endorse this video, but Dr. Roddy Ferguson also endorses this video. And he says, Monty Collier's armspin videos is just the way that I like my video series. Real, raw, informative, and down to earth. If you want some quality information and desire, go to learn some spine crippling throws that will render your opponent helpless then this is the video series for you. You can check out this video and others at www.youtube.com forward slash Nick and It's N-I-K-A-N-D-S-I. And you can rent this video for $2.99 for a three-day rental or 4 dollars if you want to purchase the part outright. It comes in five parts. So go ahead and check them out. They're doing a great job. I've got some listener reaction that I want to get to. You know how much I love the emails and hearing from you guys. Got this email from somebody out in Australia. Um, I won't say his name because he didn't say it was okay for me. So I'll just just go, hey, mate, anonymous emailer. Here from Australia, I'm here in Queensland doing a night shift driving a Caterpillar D11 Dozer pushing coal, listening to episode 25. Just shooting you an email to let you know to keep up the great work. And your Morgan Freeman is almost spot on. Hey, Hey, you hear that, Jonah? My Morgan Freeman was spot on. So for all of you people who don't think I have a very good Morgan Freeman, you can take that and stick that in your pipe and smoke it for all I care, because I know I have a great Morgan Freeman impersonation. Just to be clear, I hope you guys know I'm just kidding around. I mean, I think my Morgan Freeman's great, but I'm not that angry at you guys. Don't get me wrong. I also received a nice message from somebody on Instagram, which, by the way, Shooting me an in- a message on Instagram is the absolute worst way to shoot me a message because it goes into this queue and there's oftentimes I don't get to see it for days and days and days because I, it's just a setting that I have because I don't like getting spam, but maybe I'll I'll change that. The best way to reach out to me is on email, which is judochapsoeishow at gmail or you can tweet at me, which is which my Twitter handles at lavido judoka. And with Instagram, it's also at LaVitaJudoka if you want to follow me. But I got a a really nice uh, message from a female listener. I really appreciate you listening. I won't um, say the message because I don't have my phone on me because I like putting my phone away when I do this podcast. But rest assured, it was a very nice message. I received it and I thank you very much for being a listener and for reaching out to me. Now I'd like to get into the subject, the, the meat of this particular episode. I want to talk a little bit about judo history and I want to talk about the first world champion of judo in American history now before any of you go starts telling me "Oh, I know who you're talking about you're talking about dr. Anne Maria DeMars wrong I am NOT talking about dr. DeMars I'm talking about somebody else somebody whose story needs to be told somebody that most of you probably have never even heard of and I must say If it wasn't for a particular Reddit user by the name of Dashuta, I would have never heard of this particular person either. So let's go back in time, get in our DeLoreans, make sure the flux capacitor is working. Make sure we get up to 88 miles per hour and time travel all the way back to 1916. This story goes back in the days where manly men wore handlebar mustaches. The Ford Model T was the most popular automobile in the United States. The aristocrats spoke with classical transatlantic accents where they'd say, Darling, you look simply marvelous. And World War I wasn't even called World War I. The year, like I said before, was 1916. And out of the carnival attractions of a bygone era came the first judo world champion in American history. This is long before Dr. Anne Maria DeMars was, e- was even born. So, you know, I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about a man by the name of Adolf Ernst. A man who was born in Germany and made his way to the United States as an immigrant. Adolf was a professional wrestler who used the ring name of Ad Santel. Now, many of you guys know that I'm a huge fan of professional wrestling. I'm a fan of the history of wrestling. I'm a fan of old-time wrestlers. So for me to hear this story, I, I just I had to share it with you guys. So let me give you a little bit of context for those of you who don't know professional wrestling. Back in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, professional wrestling was a popular carnival attraction. You'd have these carnivals travel from location to location, and they were all these sideshows like like the bearded lady and the world's tallest man and and such. Now speaking of which, I used to live in Gibsonton, Florida, and I currently still live near Gibsonton, Florida. And I lived there for over 10 years. And Gibsonton is known for being home to many carnival sideshow folks. Basically, if you've ever heard the term carnies, that's what that's what I'm going to call them from here on out, the carnies. So these carnies who toured around The country, to different state fairs and such. They make their home in Gibsonton, Florida, a lot of them. If you've ever heard of the carnival attraction, the world's tallest man, well, he lived in Gibsonton. And if you drive around Gibsonton today and some of the back streets and stuff where there's big lots, you'll see things like the Tilt the Whirl and other uh, sideshow carny gimmicks that you you know you throw the ring on top of the bottle and stuff. All of that stuff. These carnies travel along and and they 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 go from show to show and they make their money that way. And it's my understanding there's several millionaires in the carny industry in the carnival industry that still that live in Gibsonton, Florida, and have made a very good living doing that. Not that I would want uh, you or my children doing carnival you know living but but it's an honest profession and a lot of people have done very well in this particular profession so carnies or wrestling used to be a part of these traveling carnival circuses and such and back in the 1900s professional wrestling was a part of that culture it was it was very popular however it's not quite the professional wrestling that you and I know today back then Mo- oh, just about all of these wrestlers were legitimate catch wrestlers or submission grapplers and such. They could actually fight. We're not talking about the Hulk Hogan's of this world who couldn't tell the difference between a wrist lock and a wristwatch. These guys could actually fight and they were legitimate wrestlers. They were legitimate tough guys, but with these tough guys traveling around the country... Making money was far more important than being tough and, and winning and losing matches and putting their records on the line. So these wrestlers would get together with these different wrestling agents and bookers and they would find local guys uh, to wrestle these catch wrestlers and take a loss. And that's where the term, if you've ever heard the term jobbers, that's where it comes from. You get these guys in the carnival in the crowd to do the job and they would split the money or, or they would get a. You, you, so, if the if the gate was, let's say, hundred bucks, they might get ten bucks out of it just to take a loss to make the wrestler look good. It still goes on today. Just it's just a little bit different, but that's what they would do. However, every once in a while, you would expect a jobber to do the job, but then he decides to break kayfabe, which is break character. And basically shoot on the wrestler, which is by, by the term shoot, a shoot is something in a professional wrestling match that is supposed to be fake but ends up being real. So these wrestlers that were traveling on the, on with the carnival folk, they needed to be able to submit people quickly. So they were called hookers and they were called shoot wrestlers. And these guys would need to be skilled in submissions because... If you pin the guy, you know, if a guy in the crowd pins him and, you know, they complain to the quote-unquote referee, hey, that wasn't a fair three count or whatever. A submission, as you guys know, who do judo, who do jujitsu and other forms of grappling, a submission is the be-all end-all. You tap out, everybody sees it, you lose the match. So these professional wrestlers were very, very skilled. So going back to Ad Santel... Santel was a wrestling champion who was well known during his time. And during the early 1900s, the Kodokan was spreading judo to different areas of the world by various students of Jigoro Kano. One student in particular made his way up to the Seattle, Washington area and his name was Tokugoro Ito. Now Mr. Ito regularly trained at the Seattle dojo which is still there today and run by as far as I know a uh, Mr. Kenji Yamada who is who is a Kodokan 8th dan. If you guys don't know and you you people up in Seattle are lucky. It is the oldest judo, judo dojo in the United States and it's a dojo that Mr. Kano Jigoro Kano has visited at one time, perhaps more than one time, I don't know, but I know he's been there at least once. So, going back to Mr. Ito, Mr. Ito was a paid instructor at the Seattle Dojo, but in order to supplement his income, because he wasn't making a whole lot of money being a teacher, he would supplement his income by doing the professional wrestling circuit at different carnival attractions. So, as the story goes, it would seem that Mr. Ito traveled and wrestled for 10 years or so and eventually made his way back to San Francisco, where he met Ad Santel, who happened to be in that area. Mr. Ito had gained a reputation for his wrestling ability in the ring, and since he was Japanese, part of his gimmick was that he was the world judo champion. Now, as we all know, the world judo championships didn't even take place until the 1950s. But he was touting his ability as a judoka and winning matches as uh, with judo techniques, claiming that he was the world judo champion. So you know, back then it's professional wrestling. You could you win a couple of matches in a row, and you know you can make the claim. Hey, you're the world judo champion. So you got to add Santel, and you got Ito looking to book a match together. And they eventually had that match, and it was about I believe it took place in San Francisco. And it was reported that Santel slammed Ito so hard on the canvas that he was declared a winner by T- TKO, and thus add Santel. Became the world judo champion. The first world judo champion in American history. And this was a title that Ad Santel claimed for many years. While he was making his own tours around the world and such. Now the Kodokan caught wind of this. And they were not pleased with Ito losing. And having some American claiming that he's the world judo champion. So to try and save face and a try and you know make Kodokan Judo not look bad they tried to claim that the reason Mr. Ito lost was because he had been away from regular judo practice in favor of professional wrestling and that his skill had diminished now the story goes that Ito and Santel fought one more time in a rematch where Ito choked out Santel and this is very common in professional wrestling where one guy wins and the other guy loses and then it goes back and forth. It's a it's a back and forth type of battle. These days they call it 50-50 booking. Now, even though Santel lost to Ito, this wasn't the end of Santel fighting judoka. And one could say he kind of made a made a gimmick out of this fighting judo people in the United States while making it appear that judo was nothing special and catch wrestling was a better grappling art. Now, in 1917, Santel made his way back to Seattle where he had a bout with a a wrestling contest with Taro Miyagi. No, it's not Miyagi, it's Miyagi, Daniel-san. I'm talking about Taro Miyagi, who is known to be a key figure in establishing Judo in the UK. Maybe some of you Judo historians in the UK are very familiar with him. Because uh, uh, Mr. Miyagi, along with Sadakazu Yanishi and Mitsuo Maeda, Yes, that Mitsuo Maeda, also known as Kande Koma, the man who taught the Gracie family judo, who then took his techniques, threw it out, what they couldn't do or understand, focused on what they could do, and then relabeled it Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Just kidding. But I digress. Yes, that Mitsuo Maeda, uh, Mr. Miyake, traveled to the UK to spread judo in the UK. So anyway, where was I? Yes, that's right. Santel, he had a bout with Miyake, and according to reports, Santel per- performed a half Nelson slam on Miyake so hard that he was left dizzy for a half hour. Now, if you guys don't know what a half Nelson slam is, just go on YouTube. There are plenty of videos out there that show the half uh, the half Nelson slam. Now, two weeks later, Santel fights another judoka by the name of Daisuke Sakai in a best out of three contest, and Santel manages to defeat him with the same technique. Twice, which is which is the bicep slicer, at least that's according to reports. So the story goes that a Japanese businessman invited Ad Santel and wrestling promoter and wrestler Henry Weber to Japan to presumably put on a show at different venues in Japan. Now upon their arrival in nineteen twenty one, Ad Santel issued a public challenge to the Kodokan. The Kodokan did not like this and did not want their students engaging in professional wrestling contests. But four of the students from the Kodokan accepted Santel's challenge. And allegedly, as the story goes, they were all barred from the Kodokan for their decision. Now, according to the stories that I could find about Santel in in Japan, he fought Rejiro Nagata in front of 25,000 people under quote-unquote jujitsu rules for three rounds, each round being 20 minutes each. Again, according to reports, for the first round, Santel was disqualified for using an illegal headlock. In the second round, uh, he ended with a draw with Nagata. And uh, apparently in the third round, Nagata had to quit that round because he was injured and could not continue. Now the following night had Santel competing against Hiku Shoji to a draw and then he wrestled another judoka by the name of Hitoshi Shimizu for a victory. And from what I could gather, his final contest had had him wrestling another judoka to a draw. So in the end of Santel's trip against and contest against Kodokan judoka, he had a record of three draws and one victory. So after this trip, Santel went back to the United States, and this whole gimmick of being the world judo champion kind of lost its steam. Like like any gimmick, loses its steam in professional wrestling. Heck, even even Austin three sixteen or 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 the Rock's gimmick tends to fall out of favor. And you know, as I saw in Wrestle or as I said in WrestleMania, when you have a lot of people saying John Cena sucks, uh, even that even that gimmick has run out of steam. So it happens to the best of them. So, when I heard this story for the first time a week ago, I I was just simply fascinated by this. And I said it before, I'll say it again. I love professional wrestling and I love judo. And throughout my time of being involved in judo, I have heard about these challenge matches matches between traditional jiu-jitsu schools and judo in the early days of the Kodokan. But... I have never in my life heard about this story until about a week ago and it's it's almost as if it's one of those things that nobody wants to talk about. It's like the the weird uncle in your family, you know he's there but you don't want to say it because then you have to talk about it in full. So this is almost one of those darker times in early Kotokan Judo history where they were involved in a business that they probably looked upon as a dirty business and Look, talk to people who are inside the industry and they'll tell you it's a dirty business. It's not a good business. So I hope you enjoyed this little trip down memory lane and going back in time to find out about an, a story about the Kodokan and professional wrestling. And there's two takeaways that I have from this particular story. One, if it wasn't for Ad Santel... There may not be professional wrestling in Japan. And for those who do do not know, professional wrestling in Japan is pretty popular. And there's a lot of wrestling uh, companies out in Japan, but the most popular one is New Japan Pro Wrestling. It's been popular for, for decades. A lot of stars in the United States have made their way over to Japan at one point or another. And they consider that... The highlight of their careers, wrestling in front of Japanese audiences, they love the action. I'm personally not a big fan of the Japanese style of professional wrestling. They call it strong style, and I think strong style actually looks bad compared to the way that professional wrestling is done in the United States. But that's just a personal preference. So, honestly, without Ad Santel, Ad Santel planted the seed of interest for professional wrestling in Japan. So. He was very influential and very monumental in bringing professional wrestling to Japan. So from a professional wrestling context, from a historical perspective, this was a very big deal. Now the other takeaway from this, and this may draw the ire of a few people, I hope not, but I hope you understand my perspective, after reading a bunch of stories, stories that were linked on Reddit, and, and just going down the rabbit hole of information that's out on the internet, I absolutely believe this entire thing between Ad AdSantel and the DakotaCon was a work right from the start. It was fake. And if there's one thing that anybody who watches professional wrestling should know, is that it's a bull****** <laughs> business. And there's nothing about wrestling that should be viewed as re- re- as legitimate or 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 true. Everything you see in professional wrestling should be you should have the approach of show me the evidence that this is true. If not, this is all the work. It's just BS. It's a bull <laughs> business and it's been a bull <laughs> business for about 130 years. I would sooner believe and, and this is where things might get a little controversial. I would sooner believe that especially with 25,000 25, people in attendance that Ad Santel and the were in on this from start to finish. You know, and, and here's the thing you gotta keep in mind. The WWE, for example, travels from arena to arena to packed houses with especially with their raw and smackdown shows. With numbers of anywhere between 15,000 and 25,000 people watching live in attendance. And talking about 100 years ago, if you have a draw of 25,000 people for a wrestling show that lasted several days or several nights, that is a huge gate. And that's a lot of money to be earned from that gate. That's a ton of money. And I would sooner believe the Kodokan were in agreement with all of this and earned a huge chunk of that gate than I would believe that they took the moral high road and refused to fight for money. I just, I'm sorry, I don't believe it. It's professional wrestling. You would, for me, you would need to show me concrete proof that the Kodokan truly took the high road on this. Now, I'm not saying Jagoro Kano was in on the work, but I believe maybe people who were within the Kodokan at the time were a part of it and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that look if there's a chance to make money and to use that money to build up the Kodokan spread judo in Japan and throughout the rest of the world it's a business decision and it's a smart business decision create a little controversy in the public sphere and put on these matches I mean after all How many matches did did Santel actually win when he was at the Kodokan? Or when he was in Tokyo? He won one match. All of the other matches ended up in a draw. And as typical in professional wrestling, you have the heel and you got the baby face. And isn't it interesting that when he fought Rejiro Nagata... The first round ended in a disqualification. The second round in a draw. And, oh, look at that. The third round, Mr. Nagata is injured. Come on. I have seen that wrestling story play out over and over and over again. I simply believe it's a work. And I'm okay with that. I love the fact that we can even look at this and wonder, was it a work or was it a shoot? And I... I, just to take an example, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Years ago, Hulk Hogan sued WCW uh, because of a breach of contract, and he made this whole thing a public spectacle. He put the, the the he put the he put the lawsuit on the internet and stuff. The whole thing was a work. He he got he was in cahoots with one of his lawyers, and the lawyers typed up a document. It was just a work. It was a work. With the whole Vince Russo and the Bash at the Beach 2000 issue and stuff. You guys would have to know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to get into that. But it was a work. And I love works. I love shoots. I love worked shoots. It's just fascinating to me in the sphere of professional wrestling. And that's what I believe. If you guys disagree, feel free to let me know. Uh, If you guys have different information that would show me that this was actually real fighting here. Let me know, but turns it in my opinion, I think it's a work. And in the voice of Paul Harvey, and now you know the rest of the story. So if you like that trip down memory lane, let me know. I'd love to hear from you if you want me to do more of that kind of stuff. Uh, shoot me an email, send me a tweet, reach out to me on Facebook. Do any of that, because I... A lot of times I take cues from some of you guys, and if you want me to talk about certain things, I will. And if not, I'll just keep talking about what I think is interesting to me. And this was one of those stories that I thought was very interesting to me. Now I'd like to talk about the Cancun Grand Prix and some of those results. Now I talked a little bit about this, con- uh, this contest last week. There were a lot of countries that did not make it out here. In particular, and I said this last week, France, Japan did not make it out there. France did not make it out there. Russia did not make it out there. Georgia did not make it out there. A lot of the Eastern European countries did not make it out there. So it wasn't a very highly attended event. But it still doesn't mean it's a bad event. And I'm not going to take away anything from the competitors that did make it. But as I said before, whenever France and Japan and Russia and those countries are not in the tournament, it's not quite the same. And it turns out a lot of those competitors were at camps at the Kodakon. Because I could, looking at pictures on Instagram, following judoinside.com, which is something you all should follow, they're just. It seemed that a lot of the athletes were there. I saw Teddy Rene do Rondori with Shoei Ono, which was interesting, seeing uh, such a large man do Rondori with somebody who's significantly shorter and smaller. But that's what, uh, that's what these international camps are for, and that's what it appears what was going on that particular week. But the athletes that did make it, they enjoyed a heck of a time in Cancun, that much I can tell, because I follow some of these athletes their Instagram and their Twitter profiles and such, and they put up some really beautiful pictures of Cancun. Now, I've actually been there. There's the Cancun you see, and then there's the real Cancun. I've seen a little bit of both. Uh, the Cancun you see is very beautiful, and the real Cancun, not so much. But that's okay, that's to be expected, because in other countries that aren't, that don't have the kind of resources like the United States, like the UK. Those are the type of things that you tend to come across. I mean, I, look, don't get me wrong. I know poverty is everywhere, but you have the tourist sections and you, you have the real life. And I always find the real life interesting. Anyway, for this particular episode, I'm going to do, I'm going to run down the winners of each division. And then I will give my thoughts on some of the matches that are worth watching. So, I already talked about the 60, under 60, and under 66 kilo winners on my last podcast. But I want to move on and talk about some of the winners of, of uh, in, in the other divisions I did not cover. Starting with Marcelo Contini of Brazil. He won the under 73 kilo division, defeating uh, Tohar Bull of Israel. In the under eighty-one kilo division, Emmanuel Lucenti of Argentina defeated Etienne Briand of Canada. In the under ninety kilo division, you had uh, Nicole Sheradeshvili of Spain. That's interesting. Defeat uh, Tural Safgulay Gulayev of Azerbaijan. Okay, so you had you did. There were three competitors from Azerbaijan, and, and they did make the trip. That's not their full team, but three of them did make it. Presumably, they needed the points to try and make a make it to the uh, world championship. That would be my guess. on the, in the under one hundred kilo division, uh, Peter Polchik of Israel defeated Benjamin Fletcher of Great Britain. Congrats to you uh, to Great Britain there for getting a silver medal. And in the over 100-kilo division, you have David Moura of Brazil defeating Alex Garcia Mendoza of Cuba. And congrats to those two gentlemen for winning uh, their respective divisions. I want to say, Peter Polchik, that's not his first medal of this IGF tour in 2017. I seem to remember discussing one of his matches earlier. Now moving on to some of the women's results, I wanna uh, I did cover some of the results last week, but again, since I'm talking about Team USA in this instance, I wanted to point out Caitlin Buyassot winning the bronze medal in the under 48 kilo division, and you got Angelica Delgado winning bronze in the under fifty two kilo division, and Marty Malloy winning gold in the under fifty seven kilo division, defeating Miriam Roper of Panama. Now in the other divisions, which I did not cover, in the under sixty-three kilo division, you have Ketelin Quadros of Brazil defeating Amy Livesey of Great Britain. All right, there's another Great Britain win. Congratulations! Uh, in the under seventy kilo division, you have Maria Bernabau of, of Spain defeating Sally Conway of Great Britain. And it looks like in the under seventy kilo division, Great Britain took uh, bronze as well. They had a Great Britain had a very good day. The women have been have had a pretty good year this year. I know some of them in the last tournament uh, medaled as well. In the under-78-kilo division, you have Maria Aguilar of Brazil defeating Natalie Powell of Great Britain. Wow, that's a boy. Great Britain, props to you. You've had a very, very good uh, tournament. And in the over-78-kilo division, you had Ivana Sutalo of Croatia defeating Melanie Bolanos of Mexico. And Mexico had a very good day as well or very good tournament because they had their first gold medal in in uh, IGF tour history with Luz Olvera winning the under 52 Gilo division defeating Sarah Menezes of Brazil. So I want to get into some of the matches that are worth seeing and I like doing this because I know a lot of you don't get a chance to watch these Contests live, but I'm not going to sit there and, and link to these contests and have you skip through hours and hours and hours of judo to watch some of the great highlights. So I want to. I like breaking down some of this tournament for you and providing you the very best of the medal rounds because I I can't I can't sit here and watch the first and second rounds. That just doesn't interest me. Even though some of the best throws happen in those rounds, I, I just it's just not not my thing. I care more about who makes it to the medal rounds and the repercharge and stuff. If I see something of note in the second round of the repercharge, I'll definitely point it out. In the under-60 gold medal match that had Francisco Garrigos defeating Felipe Pelim of Brazil, this is one of those matches where uh, uh, Pelim of Brazil shows you what not to do because he goes in for a throw, flubs it, And then he just lays there on the ground, exposing his back. I know you jiu-jitsu guys just love that. And Garagos goes right in for a choke. And and he chokes him out with uh, Hadaka Jime. Just just textbook stuff. You're going to lay on your stomach and you're going to lay there. And you're going to get choked out if you're not being active. So kudos to Francisco Garagos of España. That would be Spain to you non-Spanish speaking people uh really really good victory another word uh, another contest worth seeing in the under sixty kilo division was between Jory Verstraten defeating uh, Daniel Ben David of Israel uh Verstraten is from Belgium hopefully I got that name right I'm sure I didn't he had a beautiful throw it was kind of a Tani Atoshi almost not not quite sure when I just when I saw it, but either way, beautiful throw. I'll definitely link this. I'm gonna link all of these videos like I always do, so don't don't you fret about that. Excellent score there. Excellent judo. And look, talking about the Twitter Q and A by Marius Viersa last week with him getting ahead of the leg grab question. This I, I've said it all year. This under sixty kilo division is has just been fantastic to watch, both the under sixty and the under sixty six kilo division. Just Wonderful display of judo and just uh, I love, love watching these tourna- these divisions now, whereas before, I-, I just couldn't stand it. I'm talking about before as in years ago. In another bronze medal match you had in the under 60 kilo division, you had Adonis Diaz of the United States losing to Ashley McKenzie of Great Britain. Now, uh, Mr. McKenzie had thrown Adonis Diaz uh, with a Sayonadi and Diaz landed on his head and almost used his head he used his head to almost like try and spin out of it but ended up landing flat on its back it was initially called wazari then they credited it with ipon but i have to believe if if that was a non throw a non scoring throw that that the judge would have called hansoku maki on Adonis Diaz but congratulations to Ashley McKenzie and congratulations to Adonis Diaz for for putting in a good effort in the tournament and and getting fifth place now, I talked about this before in the under-66 kilo division. Tal Flicker uh, was impressive again, defeating uh, Alberto Gaitro Martin of Spain. Uh, classic Sayanagi gets the Wazari score, but follows up with uh, Nawaza. Textbook judo there. He holds down with the Keisig for the ippon victory. Just just classic stuff. Good to see Tal Flicker um, with another victory because I believe, I think I said it before, he, he got gold in another tournament earlier this year. In the under 66 kilo bronze medal match or in one of the bronze medal matches, the crowd goes wild for Nebo Castillo of Mexico defeating uh, Shimaliov of Israel because Shimalyov used his head to get out of, out of a throw and the referee canceled the initial Wasari score and, and gave the Hansokumaki to Shmaliyev and that allowed Nabor Castillo to earn a bronze medal. Congratulations to him. Moving on to the under 73 gold medal contest between Marcelo Contini of Brazil and Tohar Bupul of Israel. Boy, Contini put on a display of Sankaku Jime uh, that you've got to see. It's just classic textbook judo he he got the leg and the arm position properly it's one of the first hold downs chokes that you learn in judo and he applied it beautifully if you want to see it I'll link it you you, you have to see this one it's not a spectacular throw but but I have to give you know and one of the listeners pointed this out to me months ago that I maybe may not be giving the nawaza it's due when there's a victory on the ground but and I, I and he's right because I need to give credit where credit's due here. Contini, beautiful display of Nawaza to get the uh, to get the tap out and, and, and the victory for gold. Moving on to the bronze medal match in the under 73 kilo division had Alexander Turner winning via a pawn over Eduardo Arujo of Mexico with a beautiful Sayanagi, just got right underneath his opponent. Do him right over his head, right onto his back. Beautiful display of judo. Congratulations, Alexander! You, you, um, very proud of you. Very proud of Team USA in this particular event. Well, I'm proud of Team USA in every event. not not this particular event, but you got what I'm saying. Come on. Moving on to the under 81 kilo division, Attila Ungvari had another impressive uh, day. In Cancun, where he won with another. Well, he didn't win with another. There was another Jime turnover uh, that that led to the tap out to the to the mate and and he won uh, over Serge Dan Moralevic of Montenegro. I'm sure I got his last name wrong. I apologize to you if you hear this. Moving on to the under 90 kilo division, which had uh, Nicole Sheradashvili. Of Spain defeating Taral Silvgaev of Azerbaijan with a pretty impressive hold down. Hard to say if it was Yoko Shiugatami, Hard to say if it was uh, Tate Shiogatami. It was just, yeah, it was Yoko Shiogatami. He just kind of held on for dear life, kind of at an angle, not your typical Yoko Shiogatami, But but man, that uh, Safgolyayev uh, really tried to get out of that. But just solid hold down. Good use of controlling his hips. He had he had no chance once he got um, a, a, on the ground being held down. So congratulations to Sharis of Spain, which I would think with a last name like that, you'd be from Georgia. But what do I know? In the repercharge in this division, you had Zachary Burt of Canada throwing Mark Stoica of Romania with a beautiful Osoto Gari. That's one of those rep-a-charge matches for you that I figured I'd throw in there because I liked it. Now on to the under hundred kilo division. You had Andy Granda of Cuba defeating Luciano Correra of Brazil with a beautiful deashi harai. This is one I just I love deashi harai. I love seeing it in, in contests. I tell the students all the time it's such a it's such a necessary throw to do. Or to use all the time because you never know when you're going to catch somebody with it. And in uh, Granda's case, he he, just a beautiful technique for the victory. Uh, He got a bronze medal out of this. Congratulations to him. And in the over 100 keel division, I said that David Mora had uh, won this contest. But he was a winner by Shido. And there were only 8 competitors in this division and there's not one match in this particular division that's even worth watching. So I am not going to link anything from this division. Now, moving on to the women's side in the under 48 kilo division. You have to watch Caitlin's match. Caitlin Buyaso of the United States defeating Kimberly Rennicks of Great Britain. Uh, she won via Osai Komi. Uh, you know what? doesn't matter. She's an American. I'm an American. I'm going to support Team USA. Go watch this match you also have to match, uh, watch the match between uh, Gabriela Ch- uh, Chibana who won the gold medal in this particular division uh, defeating Edna Carillo of Mexico she won with a great counter in golden score it, it was a very quick and decisive victory uh, it got the wazari it, just, uh, it almost looked like uh, Sasai Komiyashi. Almost, kind of more of a sacrifice type technique but she got the victory and congratulations to her in the under fifty-two kilo division, I'm going to link the match with uh, Luz Olvera winning uh, Mexico's first gold medal in the IJF World Tour. It wasn't. It was. An, it was an exciting match to watch, but it does end in Hansoku Maki. I normally don't like list, uh, listing videos of contests that li- end in Hansoku Maki, but we're talking about something uh, something that happened in in significant, uh So it's a significant win. So I'm going to link this match. And I'm also going to link the match with Angelica Delgado defeating Tina Sikic of Croatia, which is a huge win for Team USA. Delgado ends up getting a Wazari early in the match. Being biased, I think it could have been called Ipon, but I'm sure the ref got the call right. So she manages to get the Wazari early in the match, and she holds on to that for the victory. So congratulations to you, Angelica. We're all very proud of you. And now under in the under fifty seven kilo division, you have Marty Malloy winning this division, and she didn't even have to throw anybody in the process. Uh, Malloy won by Fusen Gaichi, which I'm gonna guess that Miriam Roper somehow got injured, had to pull out of the contest. But it doesn't matter; a win is a win, no matter what shape it's in. So, congrats to Marty Malloy. She she made it to the medal round. That's all that really matters. And she she got the win. She can only she showed up earlier in the day. Uh, Molloy defeated Philzmoser Moser of Austria with a really impressive coach, Igari. I believe it was in in Golden Score. If I'm not mistaken, if I got the time right, it happened in Golden Score. So that was an impressive win. Uh, Marty from that victory makes it all the way to the finals. Now this same lady, uh, Phils Moser, uh, happened to win her bronze medal contest against Viola. Uh, Wechter of Germany via Osai Komi. So congratulations to her and bouncing back from that loss uh, to Marty. In the under-63 kilo division, you had a beautiful win by Ketlin Quadros of Brazil, defeating Amy Livesey of Great Britain via a beautiful Seoi Otoshi. I'm not going to call it drop Sayonagi It's Seoi Otoshi. Uh, got the pawn on that. Impressive victory. And let's see. Who else in this division is worth watching? Um. Oh yeah, uh, Lubjana uh, Piovasana of Great Britain. Hopefully, I got that name right. Defeated Vivian Hermann of Germany. She choked her out, unconscious, and there was actually a discussion on Reddit earlier in the week about this contest and the way that this was presented to the crowd. Because as soon as the ref called for her to be um, to get some medical personnel out, the camera switched to. To the uh, to the crowd and such now the, the video that I have I am seeing the medical personnel get over to um, to Herman and that's part of the video that most people on on the igf uh, watching it live did not see but I see that because I got special access to certain video. Not really. It's not really special access, but I have I have a different video that I watched that I can break down for you guys. In the under seventy kilo division, uh, there were really some duds. I, I hate to say that. I mean, Sarah or uh, Sally Conway lost to Maria Bern, Bernabu of Spain via Han Sokumaki. Just again, just just kind of duds in this particular division. There's nothing else I'm going to even link. So I'm going to move on to the under 78 keel division where Maria Aguilar defeated Natalie Powell of Great Britain in what I think is a very, very bad call. It was initially called Wazari and then they changed it to Epon, but I really believe it should have been Wazari. I believe the referee who was on the floor got the call right and for whatever reason he was overruled on the side. Lastly, in the over 78 keel division... Uh, and Mari Valensek of Slovenia defeated Nina Kutro Kelly of the United States. This was another situation where where we had another competitor knocked out on uh, choked out unconscious. Except uh Nina was able to get up who Nina who lost was able to get up fairly quickly within five seconds, but and the referee did not call for any medical personnel out there, but but she was definitely a little slow getting up and and congratulations to her for making it into the bronze medal match, but she just came up a little bit short. So that's it of the medal rounds. That's, those are the matches that caught my attention uh, that were either gold medal matches or, or anything apart from gold medal matches. I didn't want to cover every single gold medal match that ended in a Hansoku Tsukumaki or anything like that. So I'll, I'll link all of these matches in my podcast notes description And you guys can take a look. And if there's other matches that you thought I missed completely, feel free to uh, shoot me an email and and, and let me know what you guys thought. So with that, I think I'm going to end things here. I've been rambling on long enough. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and a little trip down history. A little down memory lane for Judo. As always, I appreciate you guys checking out the podcast. I really appreciate all the follows I'm getting on Instagram and on not so much on Twitter, but but definitely on Instagram and, and all the emails and, and personal notes that you guys send me on Facebook and and such. I, I really, really appreciate the listeners. I really appreciate hearing from you guys. And and I'm always up for constructive criticism. If you if there's something that I'm not doing right or not something that I, I could improve on, feel free to let me know. I'm not easily offended at all, and I just want to produce the best uh, podcast that I can produce. So I'm always looking to approve. But with that, I hope you had a great weekend. I hope you have a great rest of the week. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out. Whoop Gangnam Style! Gangnam Style! on Gangnam Style! Gangnam Style!